recording. <laughs> Most of us came to Buddhism, many of us, at least I did, came to uh, Buddhist meditation and Buddhist philosophy in the 1970s. The first big wave of Westerners interested in meditation, hot on the heels of TM, uh, which made the cover of Time magazine and the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Oh, I, I, we didn't, pst, we forgot to say who hasn't been here before. Doreen hasn't been here before, and now she's here. Doreen, this is Doreen, who teaches mathematics at Marin Academy. Who else has not been here before? What's your name? Elizabeth. And where do you live, Elizabeth? In San Geronimo. Oh, right here. In my home. That's great. Good for you. And? My name's Jackie Kleinman. And where do you live? San Francisco. Very nice that you came. Yes. In such a rain. I heard on the radio that the bridges were swaying. Were the bridges swaying? It's, it, the bridge was fine. As soon as you got over the bridge, it started teeming. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. Welcome to the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> the bridge was swaying. <laughs> Maybe it's the Richmond Bridge that the Richmond Bridge rolls around more than the Golden Gate. Okay, but you're here, so it was okay. They. Hi, I'm Brenda. Actually, this is my second time, but I was late last time, so I didn't get to introduce myself. I'm happy to be here, and I'm from San Francisco. Oh, good. So, do you know each other from San Francisco? And you're from San Francisco. Maybe the San Francisco contingent can talk to each other and at least write down a phone number. If you ever decide to come again, you could save the gas and save the drive. I hope you'll come again. Everybody, yeah. My name is Anne. I have been, but it's been years. Oh. So it feels feels familiar, but also new. Well, welcome back, Anne. I'm glad you're here. Okay, so... By picking, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm Carolyn. This is my husband, Fritz, and we're from Sonoma, and we've never been to this group before. Oh, well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Did you come the back road? Yeah. yeah. Was it wild out there in the rain? <laughs> I noticed that coming around the street, just driving down uh, on White's Hill, there's a, a here is that whole field of cows. But there are three bulls standing in a, a different area. Did you see the bulls? Because one of them is a baby. And, um, well, not such a baby. It's a baby to be on his own. But it's this big two bulls and this little guy. And they're chewing away on the grass, which they're probably enjoying with all this rain. And I was thinking, it's raining. And they're just cool about it. They, you know, and, and I was thinking, you saw them? See them and all the other animals out there, like, yeah. they don't care. They're just cool about it. And I, I thought, I was thinking again about the phenomenon we're going to talk about today, this is not entirely off the wall, of what picks up the mind. Because you see that, they say, whoa, look at that baby bull just munching away. That's great. No one gave him munching instructions. He figured it out, you know. Uh, uh, like people often on retreat, uh, talk about how the turkeys here sustain their practice. The mind gets to be going over some rueful thought over and over again, and it's unhappy. And all of a sudden, they come upon these turkeys who are waddling. Impro- they have found out their tails and are wobbling in that improbable way that they do. And they look so improbable. Like, who could have thought it over? How could have uh, 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 evolution produced a thing like that? You know, when its tail goes out like that, 
its wings go down like ailerons. If you watch them, tail goes out and the wings go down because he has to balance himself in walking with the tail out, otherwise they'd fall over. So they're amazing. And the quality of the ability to be amazed and the ability to be struck with, wow, is I think a really important thing to look at, maybe particularly in the beginning of the year. It's not only to address suffering, but it's to cultivate an awareness of the, the really awesomeness of the fact that there is a life. Not that life is punctuated by moments of separation from what we love and disappointments that we need to accommodate, but that our ability to accommodate is really sustained by our ability to fall in love with being in a life. Look at, this, look at those bulls. I'd like to be here tomorrow and look at bulls again or sometime else. I think we need to keep falling in love with life to have the energy to read the paper or listen to the news or yet vote again or decide to build a house or make a baby or anything that we decide, which is really voting for a future, to be amazed by life. Say, okay. So that's really why I wanted to talk a little bit about, I, I wanted to remember to talk about the bull. As the, as the spring goes on, we routinely have baby deer that come through and walk past these windows in the course of a morning, and somebody will see them. And maybe I'll be talking away, and someone will go, ah! And everybody turns over there and looks at them. And they, they go by, their, their mother goes by, and one or two babies goes after them. And everybody feels better. It's like a vote for the future. There's new starting happening again. And amazingly, baby deer look like their parents, and baby turkeys also. <laughs> You know, the, the awesomeness just of life itself. To be alive is enough. Blanche uh, uh, Hartman, who's older than I am, I think by some amount, is now recuperating in a uh, rehab center from her latest bout of needing to recuperate. And... Uh, she said, you know, the last time when I came out of the hospital, the first thing I thought was, look at this. It's amazing life going on. Look at this whole San Francisco. Look at this. And I'm alive. I can breathe. I can see it. She said, it's an incomparable feeling to really all of a sudden step back from what's happening to the position of that it's happening. Say, wow, look at that. So I really started out saying, thinking, uh, as I was planning this whole week about what I was going to talk about, I was going to talk about the um, codes of ethics and uh, behaving ourselves as a response to uh, morality and uh, uh, ethicality as a response to realizing how much the life is shot through with loss and suffering. But I think in addition to that, we really need to talk about how uh, not only uh, being a, a well-behaved person in the world is for the benefit of all beings, but for being a person that sparks energy for living in other people. Every time you say hello to somebody in an elevator, you pick them up. You could have not said hello. But you say, hello, I hope you stay dry today. You know, that's a nice thing picks them up like turkeys or bull, baby bulls or 
you know, voting, voting in favor of other people being picked up means you're noticing them, for one thing. Say to somebody in an elevator, hello, I hope you have a great day. It means you notice they're in the elevator. It means you didn't contract and, and fall back into... Um, I think sometimes I get held hostage by my own personal ruminations. How I do this, what about this, what about that? He said, I said, I'll say. You can't be doing that while noticing else who else is in the elevator or that there are baby deer or baby bulls or that it's amazing to see rainstorm like this in Marin where everybody changed to, to gravel on their front lawns last year. It's great. <laughs> we'll be a, the other droughts will come. It's good that we changed to gravel. But, you know, you look around and you say, wow. Anyway, I'd like us to sit with that as the sitting instructions. I'm going to say as the premise of these sittings that really interpreting uh, the path, the part of the Eightfold Path where the Buddha talks about wise effort, which usually talks about noticing that the mind has, uh, uh, is just about to embark on a course that will cause it to suffer, lead it into some unskillful neighborhood and take it back from there and put it somewhere else, that I think I'd like to also emphasize the put it someone else, the putting it somewhere else part as choosing to notice that in any moment there's something that you can see that's amazing, that it's happening, that we're here, that we're having another day, that things will change. So, so, so not not even not just allowing the mind to rush off into confusion and despair, but actually developing in it uh, enthusiasm and gratitude and uh, generosity. I wrote the last of my responses to greeting cards this morning, and I said to an old friend who I hadn't heard from for years, who hadn't heard from me for years, for a lack of addresses on both sides, and she found me and I wrote back, and uh, I said, you know, uh, we're still in the same place that ever we lived, uh, which surprises some of our friends because it has three flights of stairs to get up to the house. I said, but you know what? We can still do it easily. And every single day, the both of us are grateful for it. We go up and we say, look at that. We're walking up these stairs. Hey, not going to always do that, but doing it now and enjoying it. Uh, and it's just the stairs. They didn't cause me to do that. They're just there. I caused myself to do it, and it's a practice. And I think it's good for me. Don't miss it. So we'll sit. And really, the sitting instructions are just sit, let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease, and just sit there. And what will happen is that you'll be aware of your body touching the, the seat in the back of your chair, if you're sitting in a chair, and you'll be aware of where your hands are, even if you're not looking at them. And you'll be aware faintly of the sound of the rain outside on the roof. 
If you listen really carefully, you'll hear it. And you'll be aware a little bit of the sounds in the room. And you'll be aware of feelings in your body. The movements that your body makes as breath goes in and out of it, just by its own self. Sometimes when we do a, a, a body practice, we might uh, intentionally take a long breath or a short breath. But here, we just um, wait and see what kind of a breath is this. Oh, it's a long breath. Look at that. This is a short breath. This is a quiet breath. Now I'm hearing the rain again. Or just sit. And as the body relaxes into this moment, the thought machine that keeps just making thoughts, cognitions, among other things, this is a long breath, it's a short breath, that was a funny sound, just cognitions, which is normal. That's what the brain is supposed to do. And sometimes thoughts that have content in it. I'm glad I'm going to the dentist tomorrow and not today so I don't have to drive over the bridge. Or All kinds of thoughts. I like to think of thoughts like weather. If you leave it alone, it just happens and then it passes. And sometimes thoughts are like the thoughts, I like the instructions. Uh, well, in Alice in Wonderland, the instructions are drink me for those bottles of potion. In the mind, the instructions come out, think me. Here comes a thought, and it says, oh, this would be a good time to think over this thought. And it might be. Maybe your mind's nice and relaxed, and you think over the thought, and then you let it go. Maybe you think the thought, and it runs away with you and elaborates itself and creates a little sandstorm in your mind. You can say to yourself, well, I'll think this later, not now. Now I just want to use this for resting time. <coughs> I'll just sit here and feel my body. Like a shavasana at the end of a yoga class. You have a thought in the middle, ah, too bad I didn't bring my boots, I'm going to have to go out to my car, it's going to be wet, wait, I'm still here. Now I just rest. I'll deal with that later. Let's see what happens next.
it's been our habit here to uh, mention whoever feels like mentioning uh, who comes to their mind as they sit. It often happens to me that as I sit, especially if my mind is relaxed, that um, the last couple of days come to my mind, people I met, people I know, people in my family, who are in some special way um, presenting themselves to me uh, in my mind for some thought, a blessing, a healing, uh, um, rejoicing in their successes. I've been thinking just uh, about a cousin of mine uh, who uh, lives in Newark, who's uh, just a few years older than I am and is a retired physician, whose daughter uh, is a confidant of mine and is telling me that her mother now says to her, uh, do I have Alzheimer's disease? And her daughter needs to say to her, yes, Mom, you do. And she says, she's all right about it. She forgets about it after a little bit. I don't know if I feel sad or not sad about her forgetting that she has Alzheimer's, but she has Alzheimer's. And I'm thinking about all the young people who've just gone back to school in this new year. Um, My grandson who went back to college in Santa Cruz, I hope it works well for him this year too. Who are you thinking about this morning? I'm thinking about my uncle. He's my father's brother. And nobody in our family really is close to him, none of my siblings as much as I am. I just admire him. He is from New York. He's, he's hearty. He has a sense of humor. He's warm. And he worked in fashion. He has great stories, and his birthday is January 6th. Is that today, anybody? Mm, Isn't that magical, huh? He's very ill. He's on a machine. I don't know if it's a machine per se, because he's at home and he's with his wife, but I had planned to go see him and take a plane and fly there. And I was just going to find a way. I don't have the money, but I was even going to just sell my car. That was my plan, to get extra money and get like a different car just so I have some more money and get a ticket and go see him. And I don't care if nobody understands why. It's not that I want to surround myself by despair and put myself in that frame of mind. It's that I just want to hold his hands. And he's as lucid as lucid could be. I want to laugh about it. You know, whatever we laugh about, I want to watch Downton Abbey with him. I want to talk about Federer with him. I want to listen to him delight in life. And he knows how to do that. And I want to be there for his wife, who's a yogic expert. And I want to sit upstairs in the attic with her and stretch. And that's who I'm thinking about.
checking in with my grandnephew Dean, who was nine weeks old on Friday mm -hmm. and weighs now seven pounds seven ounces, mm -hmm. which doesn't sound like very much, but he was born two months premature, weighing two pounds eleven ounces, so he's um, quadrupled his his size in the last nine weeks, and I hope that he continues to thrive. I'm thinking about my daughter when she turned 16, the addition uh, that I made to the year, and I just much love and appreciate what she's doing. I'm thinking... thinking with appreciation and admiration of the person or persons who rigged up this drip system in our room here today so that um, to accommodate what looks like a little mini could have been a disaster. I'm thinking maybe when we move into our um, new hall, uh, any time when that happens, maybe we'll remember with fondness the drip. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll remember the days that we spent here that there was, oh, there was an animal under the ground here uh, during one afternoon when Maybe a dozen people were sitting here doing handcraft, knitting and crocheting. And there was some animal scratching under the bottom, <laughs> right in the middle of where we sat. It sounded just like it would momentarily pop in to the room. So we'll miss the animal scratching, and the, maybe we'll miss the animal scratching and the rain threatening to come in. And uh, maybe we'll just... Um, enjoy the next phase of our being together in uh, what will be a spectacularly uh, beautiful and um, comfortable new home. May all of the people that we've mentioned and thought about and held in our hearts be sustained in whatever their challenges today and now in the world. And may the world be sustained uh, in all the myriad challenges that it's facing. And may we be sustained in acknowledging that the world is full of challenges, communal challenges and individual challenges, that everybody in their own way is addressing the best they can. And may we all be heartened in our capacity for goodwill towards all beings.
remember why. You know, I'm planning to be here of a Wednesday. I start on the Thursday of the week before, just after I've been here. I think, what did I say I'm going to say next week? And then I spend, I remember mostly, and uh, then I spend the week on the lookout for something, for things that I really want to talk about that are on that topic. And I change my mind so many times during the week about, oh, here it is. I'll start with this. No, this is a good story. I'll start with that. Okay, I'll restart it. And this week I had the really interesting experience of ending up this, even this morning sitting and moving the pieces around and saying it's very good for me to be here because I teach myself something. Yeah, this is today. I teach myself something every week as I mull it over and change the pieces around. And I mentioned a little bit of it before, where it had been my intention to come and talk about the paramitas, the qualities of the heart, virtues of the heart that the Buddha is said to have perfected before his lifetime as Paramahansa, uh, as um, Siddhartha Gautama. And... Uh, I will actually talk about it. There are ten, by the way, in the Theravada uh, lexicon. There is generosity and um, generosity, morality, renunciation, uh, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And... Uh, there are ways that we can play with those all the time. And what, what I mostly like to say and what we've done sometime together is I've said as a thesis that they really all are, each of them embedded in the other nine, that none of them is separate from, from the others. Many years ago, um, I realized teaching about the Eightfold Path that it really seemed to me to be a one-fold path and that every part of the Eightfold Path was a piece of everything else and it was like a prism. And whatever you looked at, you could see through the prism of all the other ones. And I ended up saying, well, they're not uh, disconnected. They're like an eightfold circle. They're all, a path goes from here to here. And a circle keeps coming around to where it is so it doesn't go anyplace. And then I came sometime after some reflection to stop calling it an eightfold circle and say it's an eightfold dot. And then if it's an eightfold dot, it's a onefold dot. It's a dot. It's just one thing, like wake up and then kindness will happen from it or caring will take, happen from it. And my mind is a kind of a mind that likes to organize things into ways. So the eightfold is fine and the ten paramitas, even though I think they're all uh, permutations of each other, are wonderful to teach separately. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, before we sat, there's a way of talking about them separately where they're, um, uh, they, they can be seen as prohibitions, like um, truthfulness uh, we could think about as uh, this, is a, this is the reminder not to mislead people by what we say, uh, tell the truth. 
can even think back from it, not even not mislead, but go out of our way to give people information so that they will be helped out. Everybody here who's in a teaching capacity is telling people how to do things in a constructive way. That, uh, um, it was Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, who said that there are some people she thinks, she thought, and she put herself among them, who said had a teaching gene that as soon as they learned something that was a good thing, they ran around looking for people to teach it to because uh, probably everybody who elected to teach in some way, my father, my aunt, my uncle, I grew up in a family of people who came home and made lesson plans. That's what I thought adults did in the afternoon. <laughs> and I did it my whole life because that's what adults do. But uh, Margaret Mead was quite clear that uh, if someone showed her, she, her example was she said, if someone shows me how to tie a good fishing hook, because there she was in the South Seas, meeting cultures she hadn't met before, then she's right away turning around to find another person to teach them how to make the fish hook. But if you know something useful, you tell it. So it's fun. I, uh, the, the pleasure myself this morning was thinking, aha, uh -huh, there's, there's a way if I can think about all those paramis as perfecting oneself so one didn't do anything that was overtly harmful to anybody else. But even one step further, something that's helpful to somebody else that helps to hold up the mind or enchant it. Now, enchanted is not a good word because it's, you could bewilder it. Enchantment often means um, caught and bewildered. Uh, we get enchanted by lust sometimes. Uh, it's better uh, buoyed up and enthusiastic, appreciative. That's what I, that's what I learned this morning that I wanted my mind uh, to be able uh, to reflect a certain amount of poise or equanimity so that not only what my demeanor was in general would be good-willed, because it will be if the mind is poised. That's how human beings are when they're not frightened. They're friendly. And that uh, in addition to being friendly, I'd like my mind always to be poised, to be ready to be compassionate if something is... Um, uh, in a difficult state, and to be ready to be appreciative. Not only that somebody can pole vault. <laughs> somebody was telling us, and showed, showed a little video of a man who's uh, past 100, he's like 104 or something, who in the senior, senior Olympics just pole vaulted three feet. So somebody <laughs> said, and you can see him running, 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 and he makes several attempts to clear the three feet. So the thing is, at three feet, you know, pole vaulters, they clear 14 feet, but not at 104, you know. And I see this guy running with his pole, and, and it's so exciting. I mean, no way am I, I, I can't pole vault, you know, one foot. Not that many people can pole vault one foot, but here's this guy. But to be able to say, look at that, you know, it's like an amazing thing, like the turkeys. The mind gets amazed, and it gets lifted up when it does that. If you watch the, uh, any of the NBA <coughs> games, you see people that do like that, and the ball goes in the basket. How do they do that? They just know where that basket is in their body. The basket and the ball is not separate from their body and everybody else. And to have a mind that's looking to be 
picked up. Sometimes people say, I'm not interested in that. I think too bad, you know, that the more things that we're interested in, that's because I grew up on Robert Louis Stevenson. The world is so full of a number of things. I think we should all be as happy as kings. Isn't that? So then you feel bad if you're in a bad mood. But that's, you know, another thing to think about. It's incredible that we have moods and that we have the capacity to notice, oh, I'm in a mood. Okay. And not get upset about it. Sometimes I'm in a grumpy mood or a gloomy mood. Um, Melissa Blacker, who's a Zen teacher, says, uh, I'm in a realm every once in a while. That, that, that's another word for mood. She said, when my, my husband and I, she said, uh, oh, they've, they've been together for a long, long time, and they're both Zen teachers, so you figure evolve people. And she said, every once in a while, we get involved in a bicker, uh, and we get annoyed at each other, and it goes on a little bit. And then one of us will say to the other, I'm in a realm. We're in a realm. So you're right. We're in a realm. Let's go out and get a pizza. You know, it's like you step out of your pizza, you step out of your realm, and you go and get a pizza, and you feel better. But you know, it's not me. It's not I am mad. I've just stepped into a realm. So let me back out of this realm. That the realms are, um, what's the word? Um, the realms just arise and pass away. They're empty. I mean, they have no durability about them. They're just there while they're there, like like rainstorms on the on the on the coast on, on the White's Hill. So I was saving stuff all week to bring as a show and tell because I was noticing different things would happen, and. Um, Something would happen in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way, and I'd be delighted by it. And I hadn't been thinking, boy, I'm in a gloom or I'm in a realm. But I'd read something and I'd be aware that after that, or I'd see something, I was delighted. Like I saw the bull this morning and I was delighted. And I knew I was delighted. See, the whole thing is either in you're in a realm that's a grievous realm or a realm that's delightful. I'd say, boy, I'm in a delightful realm all of a sudden because I just saw that bull. I read the Sunday's New York Times Magazine, if you can find it, is thrilling. Uh, it has a, a very extensive story. Did you read that story about the brain surgery? Unbelievable uh, uh, description of, by a Norwegian journalist who goes to uh, Serbia, I think, Alb Albania, to Albania to observe a certain uh, uh, very famous brain surgeon do two different surgeries. So it's all about the preparation and understanding what's involved in brain surgery and actually uh, going into the surgery and following this and watching it and having the surgeon step aside and say, look in, these micros in this microscope now and describe how they cut, shave a head and cut out a piece of skull and cut back the membrane and open the brain and go into the middle of the brain and cut away, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true, <laughs> and cut away the pieces of the brain that are causing the problem. And in one case, 
the person is alive. They're both alive. Awake, <laughs> awake, awake with uh, his head screwed in to a vise. Did you see it? Yeah, so and he so here's the surgeon is doing. Over here's this person with his head shielded from watching, who is telling the person he's talking in Albanian to a translator who's saying to the doctor, uh, he can feel his face twitch, he can he can feel his nose, he can feel this, he can feel that. And now he doesn't now he does. And letting this other person know, I can go a, a little bit this way, a little bit that way. So at one point, these, the the journalist says, "How much space are we talking about?" So I don't know, a millimeter or two. Ah, that's very small, you know. And there he is. Uh, I was there was everything about it. If you look it up online, I'm sure you get it. It's um, uh, it's New York Times Sunday Magazine. And it's called an open mind is the name of the is the name of it. And here's this here's this guy with his actually his brain open. So it so that's enough because you if you want you'll you'll go and read it. But I read that and I thought you know people have figured out how to do that. You know, a hundred years ago there was no medication available other than. Um, Aspirin and and foxglove, digitalis, and now look what we do for people. Look, it's amazing, and I think to myself, there's got to be some way in which all this amazing think power and brain power and and dedication can figure out how to fix the world, fix the atmosphere, clean it up, seed the clouds. I don't know what, but uh, it's uh, uh, the the human mind has done incredible things. It somehow makes me feel more confident in a future. Maybe that's some kind of, you know, uh, Mary Poppins. You know, but I don't think so. Why? And besides, what's the alternative? I can either think that things have got to get better, or not. What would be the value of thinking they're not going to get better? I would be, in addition to everything else, gloomy about it and not making an effort about it. So that's it. It says here, bring the show and tell. That was the show and tell the brain surgery, but it wasn't the whole show and tell because I didn't. I wanted to say three things that were amazing to me. One is that John Holm died yesterday. He was a professor of linguistics uh, and the head of a department at, um, uh, in uh, uh, Hunter College. Anyway, his doctoral thesis. Um, he was 72 years old. His doctoral thesis uh, is called An Introduction to Pigeons and Creoles. He was somewhere uh, listening to people speak in linguistic terms Mr. Holm was a substratist someone who emphasizes the contributions of non-European languages to Creoles as opposed to a superstratist who considers Creoles to be reduced forms of European languages with minimum contributions from non-European sources. He also insisted that pigeons and Creoles be regarded as languages in their own right, not debased versions of source languages. They are new languages, he said, shaped by many of the same linguistic forces that shaped English 
and other, quote, proper languages. He wrote in the Introduction to Pigeons and Creoles. I think to myself, it's amazing that somebody wanted to spend their whole life studying <laughs> these two particular languages and wrote dictionaries about them and taught them. It's like people are so diverse. Here's another one. This is about a woman named uh, uh, Lori Anderson. Did you read this in the paper the other day? Lori Anderson recalled in an interview eight years ago that she was backstage with the cellist Yo-Yo Ma at the Rhode Island School of Design graduation ceremony when she turned to him and said, I have this fantasy where I look out and the whole audience is dogs. He replied, are you kidding? I have the same fantasy. <laughs> so, I mean, is that, that pick up your mind a little bit? Ms. Anderson, the performance artist known for incorporating new technology into her work, got her wish two years later. She and her friends put on a concert for hundreds of dogs outside the Sydney Opera House with the music emitters from speakers at a low dog-friendly frequency. She didn't want to risk shocking the dogs with a high frequency. At the end, the dogs began to bark. It was a beautiful sound, she said. They barked for five minutes. That was one of the happiest moments of my life. So they were going to, uh, and until now, Ms. Anderson has not had the opportunity to repeat the scale and sensation, the concert in Australia. But at 11.30 p.m. on Monday, that's two days ago, she'll get that chance. Dogs and their owners are invited to sit on the red steps of Duffy Square in New York while she performs music that to the passers-by in Times Square may not sound like much because of the low frequency. Humans can turn on with wireless headphones. There are 350 total that will be given out before the beforehand. It's amazing. You know, you hear the news in the morning, this tragedy, this terrible, this, 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 that. And they're true, and we really need to pay attention to that. This is not to say pretend the world isn't facing the challenges that it is, but don't only pay attention to that. It picks up the mind to think somebody's doing that. There was also a long article about a um, a gay bar in uh, Haifa in Israel, particularly for uh, Palis- for uh, Palestinian Israelis. Do you know that one fifth of the co- uh, of the population of Israel are Palestinian Arabs, and uh, which means more than a million. Palestinian Arabs. Uh, Arabs make up a fifth of Israel's population of 8 million, and in recent years they have grown more assertive in expressing their Palestinian identity. Their, Their public life in Haifa is a striking secular counterpoint to the conservatism of many of Israel's Arab communities where, anyway, these are women in this gay bar. It's run by two women who are partners. And so sometimes we have, I I read that and I I said, well, why is this wonderful? First of all, it's wonderful because it's happening. And it counteracts my sense of there being really a a complete separation of communities. I feel good when youth, uh, these are generally young women, maybe they're going to change this. Maybe they'll hang in long enough. My old friends in Israel are despairing of the situation. Maybe, given enough time, 
the young populations will figure out somewhere, some way, not only to go to bars together, that's fine, but in addition to that, to get elected to office and make changes and make a different world. The, the, I sound like uh, I, read, uh, I read a review of uh, Yoko Ono arranging some conference where, maybe it was on New Year's Eve, where Times Square was filled with Imagine. But imagine, you know, uh, really. So I was thinking as I put those all together, uh, I thought, well, so really, what do they all share in common? For me, I, you know, I read them and I'm amazed. Can you think of a better word? I'm amazed. Someone's reaching into a brain and taking out whatever is the malign element in them and fixing it. And the person is talking while it's happening. That's like an incredible thing. Or the concert for the dogs in Times Square. Uh, or these women who are secular Arab Israelis. That's great. And my mind feels better when I hear about that. I really feel what I said earlier about uh, um, when I, often when we leave here, uh, there's a, a dedication of merit that people often do uh, ritually at the end of a meeting or a class or a retreat. You say, may the merit that we've accumulated by being here and talking about Dharma and learning together and sitting together and meditating together. May that merit uh, continue with us and be offered generously for the well-being of all beings. And it's a nice thing to say. We don't say it here all the time because, uh, you know, if I really want to think about it, it sounds like merit is something that you temporarily get and that you give it away at that point. and that doesn't, that it's, it's nice to think about. Maybe it's a generosity to have it as an impulse. But I'd rather say that to the degree that oneself is lifted up or one's own mind is clear and um, uh, at ease, poised, it meets the world in a way that transforms it. It doesn't have to say, okay, now I'm doing this. We just do. We just do return to the world with a picked-up mind. Like I think of the word buoyancy a lot, as as in, in contrast to. Uh. <laughs> and sometimes you have days when your mind is uh, and it feels like it's fatigued. I was thinking about that when I was putting together all these ideas. I said, "Don't don't try to sound too much like." Uh, Goody Two Shoes or Mary Mary Poppins, because it's not that. I mean, the mind gets fatigued, the mind gets annoyed. No, annoyance arises in the mind. That's a much better way to say it. Annoyance arises. (laughs) I don't know how many times this year I have used that uh, example from the opera where the annoyed king says, anger arises in me. (laughs) I'm in a rage, 
and th I think of nothing but revenge, all within five minutes, you know. So anger arises, I'm in a rage, let's do revenge. Anger arises, you say, anger arises in me, well, maybe I should do something about that. Maybe I could address that. Maybe I could relax a little bit. Maybe I could think about how unpleasant this feeling of anger is in me. You know, if, I, if I'm driving along in my car, that's the way I first began to notice it. I'd go somewhere, and maybe something happened in a meeting or in some sort of a conference where I'm thinking about it coming home, and all of a sudden I'm not so happy about what somebody said, and I'm mulling it over in my mind. I see that I'm all of a sudden grasping onto the—do you ever see that in yourself? All of a sudden grasping onto the wheel, and all of a sudden the body gets tense. So that's the play. Anger, <laughs> an angry passion is arising in me. Okay, relax. Take it easy. Take a breath. Think it over. I was teaching uh, on New Year's Day. I said in my, I'd made notes to myself, and I made notes, teach T-I-O and G-A-G. And I, I had to think a minute because I could remember that T-I-O. Do you remember what T-I-O is? Think it over. <laughs> you know what G-A-G is? Get a grip. Get a grip. <laughs> Something happens and you think, ah, I'll tell them. Da, 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 da. Say, wait a minute, why? Why are you going to do that? Make trouble for yourself, make trouble for somebody else. I was thinking again about um, that the the uh, the one about the dog people, and when I the woman who did the concert for the dogs, that's not a normal thing to think about. You know, I think I'll give a concert for dogs somewhere, and the dogs will be pleased. And the dogs barked for five minutes. She said it was the happiest moment of my life. You think, well, you know, it never occurred to me to give a concert for dogs, but it occurred to her, and she did it. And it was, makes her really happy to have uplifted these dogs, uh, <laughs> assuming they were barking out of delight. Maybe, <laughs> maybe if we could speak bark, that meant, thank goodness, it's all finished. <laughs> but, but actually, since they all sat quietly, apparently, during, so it was okay. But the impulse to delight uh, and to add to the world something to add to the world something good i i remember telling you bringing that uh article from the paper after that uh, a really terrible event in paris a month or so ago uh about the man who pushed out a piano into the place de la republique the next day and played the piano like the cellist of sarajevo who played the cello in the town square in Sarajevo for 22 days after 22 people were killed in Sarajevo, that the impulse in human beings to soothe, that's what it is. I didn't realize it till this minute. I think it's the impulse to soothe that we do on, on babies if they get upset. We tell them, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Even you know, sometimes you, they're not going to be all right or, or something has to happen. The impulse, I mean, because we do that when people 
or my experience has been from being with people who are dying, that you say to them, you're going to be all right, this is fine, you're doing it fine, you're going to be okay, this is good. It doesn't mean you're going to live and thrive. It means you can manage this, you'll be all right, that you calm down, this is, this is an okay thing to be happening. Do you remember the book um, Cutting for Stone? Yes. Abraham Verghese. Yes. Do you remember that he talks about um, uh, the book has to do with people who are emergency room doctors and training emergency room doctors. And uh, he gives the example of the first class for a new group of people coming, residents coming to train in emergency, resident, uh, emergency medicine. And he says, what is the first medical intervention with someone who's, uh, that has just in, endured a traumatic event, someone who's in emergency? And the answer to that is, you say to them, you're going to be all right. You say to that if you're the paramedics and you come with an ambulance, you say a fireman, if you're the people in the emergency room, you're going to say everything's going to be all right. And you don't know actually that they're going to live or thrive or anything, but it's good for them and it's good for the medical intervention and it's good for everybody for on top of the event to have the person be able to calm themselves down and uh, not be terrified which everybody is. Mm. What was very uh, particularly interesting and moving to me in this very blow-by-blow account of the brain surgery (laughs) is that the journalist who's writing it says that in the anteroom to the surgical theater, as everybody is all scrubbed and set up to go in, the surgeon with whom he's been meeting and talking for a few days is all ready to go, and he's sitting there, and he, the journalist, says to the surgeon, uh, uh, are you uh, nervous about this? And he says, I think, I think these are the words, he says, I'm always terrified. <laughs> and he said, we went in and he was looking worried around the, the uh, patient. And then they said, okay, ready to go. And he said, all of a sudden he's completely there, completely focused, and just relaxes into the situation, and it just happens. And sure-handed, and no shaking, no nothing. Because once you're doing it, you just do it. That's, I think that's true of people with um, uh, stage fright. They say, uh, oh, what was it? what's her name? It was, it was so... Sweet. She's a wonderful uh, soprano who's just now, oh, she's just now retiring from Grand Opera to sing theater, which you can do for more years. She's in her 50s. Natalie Desai. She's a really amazing opera singer. And uh, there's a film called The Making of La Traviata, and she's in it. So it's not the opera. It's about the making of it and the... Uh, seeing how a director works. And I saw the film in the Raffel Theater, and Natalie Desai was there. She's in the film, and she was in the Raffel. So after the film, she came up and was interviewed and spoke a little bit. 
And the theater was full of people like myself who are really interested in, in opera and will come up an afternoon to watch the film and see her. And the first person with a question from the audience said, do you, uh, do you get stage fright anymore? Long career. I mean, she said, always. She said, I tried everything. I tried uh, pills. I tried alcohol. I tried psychotherapy. I tried meditation. I tried psychodrama. I tried this. I tried that. I tried everything. Just before, I'm terrified. The curtain goes up. I'm fine. So it's just somehow the mind has all this energy and it thinks every possible thought and the curtain goes up and fine. Uh, I think it happens to everybody that you, ha you get excited because you're going to do it and maybe uh, the body doesn't quite know the difference between excited and frightened because it probably is the same enzymes or hormones. Says so always, I throw up, I this, I that, but not on stage. You know, then I get on stage and I'm fine. Uh, so maybe it's the concentration that does it. But the ability, uh, I think probably uh, uh, actors will tell you this, that the reason they go back live on stage every night is because it's thrilling to be able to delight people. You know, not only to be famous or to be accomplished, but to delight people, that it's thrilling to delight people. Oh, I, I mentioned to you that uh, may the dedication, may uh, the merit of whatever we think about and talk about be offered. And it's simpler than, oh, what's meritorious. I remember the story about myself. Uh, so I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't tell this story because it's like self-serving. I did something good. But I, I probably often tell that anyway. And it's a long time ago, so it wasn't me now. But anyway, <laughs> so it's a long time ago, maybe 25 years ago, my, uh, my cousin's, uh, my first cousin's son was having a bar mitzvah. And, um, I, and it was uh, in New York, but I was in Massachusetts at a, three-week metta retreat. So I'd just been doing all this metta practice, day and night, day and night, day and night. And I left there and went right to this bar mitzvah. And people said, oh, it's going to be so noisy there and so everything there. And it's, you've been here in the silence for three weeks. It'll be so unpleasant. But it wasn't unpleasant. I was in the best mood. I, you know, I grew up in the same house with this cousin. I love him a lot. Here's his lovely son. And he's having a bar mitzvah, and that's great. And uh, so I was really enjoying it. I was everything about it was pleasant to me. Anyway, we go after the bar mitzvah ceremony. We adjoin to a neighboring room, which is often true. A synagogue will have a very large social hall, and they'll have tables set up and um, a party, often catered party, catered party, often degrees of elegance. But this particular party was a buffet. So you went in and you found your table because you had, they had name tags on the table. And uh, then you went to the buffet and helped yourself. So I found myself with old people. This is 25 years ago. So, uh, you know, but if I'm 80 now, then I was already past 50 at the time. But they seemed to me old uh, and, and crotchety. Anyway, old, and the first thing they said while milling around this table was, 
I don't know if it's the first thing, but they said, not even waiters, you have to go help yourself. So I said, oh, well, that's great, you help yourself, you can choose exactly what you want, all the better. So we choose, and we come back, oh, we're choosing, and as we're choosing, the band starts up, and it's so loud, and they say, oh, the music is so loud, <laughs> kids with music so loud. I said, yeah, look at that, this is just what they love, the young kids, look at them, they're already out there dancing. This is great. They're having such a good time. And we get them, you know, take them back to the table. And I notice that people are now jogging around trying to sit next to me. Because, and, and they don't know me. But I thought to myself, the thing is, we're all vibe machines. And if you come near somebody who's a good vibe machine, then you feel like hanging out near them and sitting near them. So... <laughs> Is that self-serving? That's a little self-serving. It's a long time ago, wasn't it? But I think that's what we're supposed to do. I think that's what we're supposed to do. It's partly, I thought about that uh, when I was teaching in other, in other situations, because uh, I, I taught in the College of Marin and I taught it at um, Dominican for a while, that you actually, you want, that teaching is like, feeding children, that you want to make it look appetizing. And so you present it in a good way, in a cheerful way. Look at this great lunch. Wow. And the open mouth. This is really wonderful. You know, you, you, you set a context. Of, Can you believe it? I'm going to learn algebra. I'm amazing. You know, that, and you pick up people so that they pay attention. And it's like feeding children. They open the mouth, open the mind, and listen to you. It seems to me a, a way of um, conducting yourself so that really what that story... Now, I'm glad I told it to you because it's a, it, it uh, clarifies for me that it's either we do things that push people away from us or that draw us near to us. You know, so everybody said, well, many people, not everybody, will say that their grandmothers will say, said, my grandmother always said you catch more flies with honey than with... Whose grandmother here said that? You catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Felix, what are you going to say? Did your mother? <laughs> grandmother. That's one of those things, but it's true. But to have that as a um, to have that as a motive, may my life in this planet today pick up a few minds. May I make it easier for other people. That's why we have politeness. That's why we have manners. That's why we hold doors. It picks up people's mind when you hold the door for them. They see they all smile, thank you. It's not only because you held the door, that was nice, but you noticed them. You noticed them. We passed bank tellers and people at the DMV and people in the checkout counter. I hope they don't sound like an ad for self-improvement course, do they? <laughs> But I really, th I really think it's, a, in a sense, the undersung, the undersung hero of the dharmic path. Talk about not causing suffering, but I'm thinking about, yes, causing happiness. Mm -hmm. And that's another way to set the, set the intention at the beginning of a new year. Yeah, okay. <laughs> The end of my notes has checked to say that you didn't hear, sound like a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. <laughs> no, I, but I, I, I didn't. But 
I actually think it's not, it, it's a good dictum to have that <coughs> this is a difficult life. And there is, a, when I came in, somebody said appropriately, did you see the newspaper this morning? I didn't because I was looking at something else this morning. I said, did something happen? I said, well, you know, just really the same stuff. And uh, so I, th I, th I think it's appropriate. I will read the newspaper when I get home, and it is the same stuff, because actually the sort of terribleness that happens rarely makes a front page. What makes a front, it, it, that you're having a concert for dogs is in the back pages, or that something extraordinary happened, this man made a dictionary in Creole and pigeons. Uh, but uh, that there was this terrible event and that terrible event because they they ignite interest. Um, they do, and I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about why. You know, uh, there's there's something uh, titillating or uh, captivating or frightening about it, and then the mind wants to get reassured. It's all right. I'm not sure, but it certainly sells more newspapers to have some alarming headline on it than uh, having a dog concert on Times Square. <laughs> but really, and really, I want to put this all, position this all back into the third part of the, the first part, the third aspect of the whole Buddhist path the every um, every primer in Buddhism will say the Buddhist path has three parts: the development of uh, wisdom, the development of mental skills, and the development of ethicality, moral morality. And the Metta Sutta, which is the Buddha's teaching, uh, uh, in my in my mind, it's the one page with all the instructions. Uh, I I think to myself, we still have. Metta retreats and mindfulness retreats and concentration retreats and um, I, th I guess that's it in terms of types of uh, mind trainings. But in my mind, they are all the same thing. It's like the eightfold dot that it wouldn't be possible to be um, to have goodwill in your mind, and uh, which is what. Meta practice is friendliness practice, compassion practice, appreciation practice. It wouldn't be possible to do it unless you were paying very careful attention all the time, very very careful attention to what's happening, so that you would see uh, what to appreciate or how to respond, or that you'd have enough balance in the in the mind to be able to manage it. This is where the eightfold dot comes in. That the aspects of the dot hold everything together like wise concentration which is usually listed last in the eight wise concentration is kind of, is a kind of steadiness of mind uh, that uh, allows it to absorb the shocks of all the things that the mind is um, startled with during the day I thought this was what I every experience that we have has the potential for startling the mind into confusion. Either we have a pleasant experience, that's a good smell coming out of that restaurant. Oh, 
it's a pizza restaurant. Oh, I feel like I, I'm actually hungry. I didn't. I wasn't thinking about that. But no. But I'll be late to the dentist, and besides, I'll have pizza to suck in my teeth. No, to go. But uh, what should I do? But I'm actually hungry. But a second before the pizza restaurant, you were all right. You know, just smell that stuff. Uh, or all of a sudden, uh, your bus gets stuck in traffic, and a minute before you were okay, and now you think, oh. I have that appointment with my dentist. Now I'm going to be late. What's the matter with this bus? It should just have chosen a better lane. It should have gone faster. What's the matter? This traffic is terrible. That all these people, they shouldn't be all here at the same time. Look, one person in a car. That's not right. It uses up so much. I mean, the mind can it can leap into a lust. It can leap into an annoyance. It can fall asleep because it gets exhausted. I should, well, I'm really finished. After, by the time I get to the dentist, I'm going to be a wreck, and I hate the dentist anyway. And who knows, maybe even the dentist will find out I have to have more dental work done, and it could be even worse, and it's so expensive anyway. And why did I choose a dental that's so far downtown, and you could get here late? There are, there's five different dances that the mind could do around a bus stuck in traffic on the way to the dentist outside a pizza parlor. There's like five different things that the mind can leap into. And to be able to say, you know what? Look at my mind. It just did a major hindrance dance, and it's over nothing, over the smell of a pizza, which propelled this whole thing. It's a major fall, which confuses up the whole mind, unless there's a little bit of, uh, not a little bit, a fair amount of balance in the mind. They say, wow, look at that. A full-blown multiple hindrance attack in 30 seconds. <laughs> Amazing. All right, take another breath, and we're continuing. The bus is starting out. We're going again. All right. So it's not about not noticing all this stuff. and not, it's, not, it's about noticing all of the ways that the mind jumps. I could do this, 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 or this. And the mind that says, listen, don't bother doing any of those. It won't do any good. The only thing it's going to do is confuse you and make you upset. So... Let take another breath and continue to go. That's what wise concentration is about. Sometimes I, when I'm thinking about it and teaching about it, I, t I teach about as I, if you want to go in a sailboat that's going to be in a lot of winds, you want to have a lot of ballast in the, in the hull so it won't tip over. That's what we really need. We need a little bit of more enough ballast so that things happen and we know they're happening. Oh, wow. Because you, you have to feel it. Oh, hungry, mad, uh, okay? And continuing. So the, the wise concentration keeps the, the, is the ballast. Wise mindfulness is, that was a, that's lust, that's anger. That's my mind getting all confused and tired. And that's my mind getting all restless and worried and fretting. And that's my mind just doing a little jig of self, uh, lack of self-confidence. Uh, but here I am, and I'm continuing to go to the dentist, and my mind is still relatively peaceful and easy because my mind, the mind that's relatively steady is also the mind that holds wisdom in it. And the wisdom of that situation is I'll get to the dentist when I get to the dentist, and no amount of fussing is going to get me to the dentist faster. I'll just get me to the dentist whenever I get there, and I'll be annoyed, but because I've whizzed myself up here. It's really about uh, uh, concentration in order to preserve wisdom, in order to preserve the mindfulness 
that sees all these things happening, and in order to allow wise effort, which is a third of the three Eightfold Path parts that have to do with mind development, the effort to say, don't do that, Sylvia. Just take another breath. You'll mm -hmm. get to the dentist when you get there. That, forget all that dancing around. That's, those are the three mind development parts. And the two parts that have to do with wisdom have to do with saying, look, how uh, nothing, I've been thinking about this all week, nothing upsets me except my mind, is what one of my friends told me the other day, and I've been teaching it all over the place as a very humble um, replacement for the Four Noble Truths. It seems so not nice to be replacing the Four Noble Truths, so venerable with a sentence like, nothing upsets me except my mind. But that's really true. When you think nothing upsets that person, whoa, except their mind. That's true. Things happen. What upsets me is what my mind does with those things. Things are happening all the time. It upsets me that, uh, it upsets me, the wars that are in the world and the homelessness in this country and the fact that an enormous percentage of the population in the United States goes to bed hungry and that our educational system has been terribly undermined. There are a lot, a lot of things that I would have before last week, before my friend said that phrase to me, said all of these things upset me. So the truth is, they do upset me. But what I'd like to be able to say, as I am concerned about all of this stuff, and I am trying very hard to not be um, confused by it. So I'm trying really to hold this all in awareness and in clarity so that I can act on it, not so that I cannot see it. I want to be able to see it, and I want to have a mind that I can count on to be steady. Do you see the difference between that? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it sounds like, well, it's nothing to me. It's everybody's <clears throat> karma. Forget about it. Not at all. Mm. Not at all. It's quite the opposite. I see it. I get it. I grok it. I'm not doing it. And what goes along with that, that seeing it, is, uh, the second, uh, is the second of the two wisdom parts, which is wise intention. Say, okay, I really intend. So far I'm good. We're only on the sixth day of the year. One of my intentions was every single morning. I, I usually get up in the morning and sit. And it's the long-established habit. Uh, but every once in a while you get up, it's late, da -da, this happened, that happened, someone calls, and you say, well, okay, and the day goes by. So, so far, day six, that intention to sit every morning, I'm still doing that. We'll see next week. I don't know, but I'm happy to have that intention because if I get some kind of a imperative phone call, I won't, but I'll know that my intention is to do that, so I probably will. People ask, uh, my friend James Barras is famous for uh, his answer uh, uh, to I sit every day. He says, I sit every day, no matter what, so that I'll remember that I want to sit, even if I'm sitting for a minute. I sit down, take a minute or two, organize myself, and then I go if I have to. But I remember that that's my intention. And then the three other uh, Eightfold Path parts uh, which make up the whole of the path have to do with ethicality. They have to do with acting in a way that doesn't cause, um, well, doesn't cause uh, harm, 
doesn't exploit or exploit or uh, um, hurt anybody else. Well, that exploiting is hurting, abuse anybody else, not exploitive or abusive, and speaking in a way that's not exploitive or abusive. Um, I heard myself the other day when I was teaching, reminding myself, and I guess everybody else, but I reminded myself of my father always saying, um, never, uh, all comparisons are invidious, don't make them. So invidious, they they have the potential of bringing up bad feelings in other people and in yourself. So that if... uh, so that, you know, uh, uh, well, let's see, uh, uh, the stuff I learned from this teacher, the, the Dharma I learned from this teacher, was much better than the Dharma that I learned from another teacher. Why, what's the point of that? Uh, uh, I, I'm glad to say I don't think I said that, but uh, I could if I want, if I thought some teachings were more valuable than others. I could say, this is the most valuable teaching I've ever had, period. I have to say who told it or when it was or in any way make a bad feeling in myself or anybody else. Especially with that particular example, there are some notable cases, and I'm definitely not going to talk about which ones, where people who, uh, whose teaching style was so not congenial to me, I thought to myself, ah, who other people found completely liberating to them, you know, uh, which always surprised me. People would say, you know who's my root teacher is da-da-da, this one. No kidding, look at that. And so, so, you know, but definitely different strokes for different folks. So um, it doesn't make anybody feel better, comparisons. And I, I certainly don't do it about Dharma teachers, I don't think, but you might do it about other places, um, just it's not necessary. Not Barcelona is better than Paris. For some people, say Barcelona was my favorite city in Europe. That's all. Period. You know that. Uh, but to notice it causes bad feelings. What if the person I'm talking to is a, a very big Paris fan or something? The, the idea is not that you about the exchange of information. The idea is the bringing up the better and worse. What does the other people think? What do the people you're talking to think? Do they have a different opinion? And they think, oh, Sylvia thinks that, but I think why, and this one, that. It just doesn't matter. I can, you know, I don't have to stir that up. So I was teaching it the other day, and then there was some occasion between last Friday and now <laughs> when I was about to do that with some conversation. I thought, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so... It's a, it's a valuable kind of a thing. It's like the intention I have not to say I should have. Mm-hmm. I'm doing well on that. I'm doing well on that. I think this is my third year of intending that. So I say, oh, I should call my Aunt Miriam because uh, I said I would. What, what I really I'm trying to say is uh, uh, I hope I'll be able to call Aunt Miriam this afternoon because I forgot to the other day, which does not punish me for it. Ah, I should have. That's kind of like, you did that bad. It's not good for my morale. 
So speak it, that, that, that would be under wise speech, not, not abusing myself with my speech, not abusing other people. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood is what I do. Uh, <laughs> is this gainful employment or is, uh, is what I do to support myself good for people and good for me? And that for sure, you know, that actually somebody came to class with me, one of my friends, some years ago. Uh, some, somebody, I guess, was, was staying with me or something. And I said, tomorrow's Wednesday, I need to go to work. Do you want to go with me? And they came to class that morning. And we're going home afterwards. And she said, you know, that's not work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're having such a good time. But, you know, that's, that's I hope that we could do work. Like that surgeon loves the work that he does. And anybody who does anything and does it with... Uh, the intention to serve probably feels great when they do it well. So the, I want to read the first 13 lines of the Metta Sutta, which are really instructions for how to be a happy person. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I love that sentence. You know, you can forget all the wise this, wise that, wise the other. He said, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, which about covers it. You know, that... uh, and the line that comes after that, which will take up uh, maybe, I'm not going to be here for the whole of January. I'll be back in February. The 17th of February. Six weeks. Whoa. Five weeks. Okay. But then a lot in February and March. Uh, but it's very good for me to teach here because I keep saying this to myself and I keep learning it and I keep learning it better. Um, I learned that better about uh, what we really want is not only a mind that doesn't create suffering, but one that actively uh, augments happiness. That's a really important thing. I learned that this morning. The line that we'll start with is, wishing in gladness and safety may all beings be at ease, because that's the ultimate tweet, you know? It's the ultimate thing. Mm-hmm. If I could wish with my whole heart, may all beings be at ease, and include every being, even thinking just of human beings, everybody who's embarrassed me or humiliated me or annoyed me or, or I felt that they did that because they just did something and I managed to feel humiliated or annoyed or because they just did what they did. I'd be really a liberated person. And if everybody did that, we'd have a peaceful world. So I hope you have a very good January and a really wonderful half of February. And uh, unless I'm going to see you on retreat next week. Is anybody coming on the Meta retreat? Ta-da! It's here. 
very full. It's very full. But it'll be great. Uh, and you could think about us up there. There'll be people, uh, a lot of people wishing well for everybody. So may the merit of our coming together in this way really go with us in the terms of our transformed hearts constantly transforming themselves be um, uh, a, uh, a soother of all the people that we meet, our family and our kin in our community and ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.